You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JcastNetwork.org. My teacher, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, often talks about uh, the fact that the central stories of any religion tell you almost all that there is to know or that one needs to know about the worldview of those religious traditions, about their ethics, about their practices, about their orientation. Right? So a lot of what we need to know about Christianity, for example, one can learn from the symbolism of the passion and resurrection of Jesus. And a lot that we might want to know about, uh, about Islam might come from the experience of uh, Muhammad receiving revelation uh, from the angel Gabriel, and in some ways also from the uh, persecution and early growth of the, uh, of the, um, of the uh, early uh, Islamic um, uh, community. What we might know about Buddhism comes from the experience of Siddhartha Gautama meditating under the Bodhi tree and receiving enlightenment. <coughs> And if we apply that same principle to Judaism, then we have to acknowledge, okay, so we have a central story in the Jewish tradition, and that story tells us, according to Rabbi Dorf's theory, all we need to know about the essence of Judaism, the car of Judaism. What is it at, at its core? What is it, what's its worldview? What is it trying to get across? What is it trying to achieve? What is it trying to instill into its members? The central story of the Jewish people, of course, is the one that we celebrate today and this week, the Passover story, the story of the exodus from Egypt in so many ways. It's the origin story, the birth story of the Jewish people. More commandments than any other trace themselves back to the experience of the exodus in one way or another, either in the sense of uh, uh, principles of ethics, that you should love the stranger for you were once We'll talk about that tomorrow. Or things like Shabbat, that are Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim, that are remembrances of, of leaving Egypt. The essence, the birth of the Jewish people is the story of the Exodus. And so that means that in order to understand what it is to be Jewish, what it is to live a Jewish life, it's worth going back to that story to mine the Exodus for insights and values about what this whole experience, what this whole prospect of being Jewish is all about. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, over the next few weekends to talk about being Jewish and to do it through the lens of the Exodus. What does the Exodus story tell us about being Jewish? The first thing I think it tells us about being Jewish, and this is going to sound somewhat odd, maybe counterintuitive for, uh, to be coming from a rabbi in synagogue no less, but I think that the Exodus teaches us that being Jewish requires doubt and skepticism. Being Jewish requires doubt and skepticism. What do I mean? I meet so many people who are exploring and thinking about Judaism as a new path in their life. And I ask them, 
Why is it that you're exploring Judaism? And nine times out of ten, and I bet Robert Creditor probably has received this as well, nine times out of ten, the answer is because my home faith discouraged questions. I wasn't allowed to challenge anything. I wasn't allowed to investigate anything. It discouraged free thought and skepticism and doubt. And I'm attracted to Judaism because Judaism is all about questions. If you paid attention to the Seder last night, you would note that the whole thing is structured as a series of questions. We start with the four questions, but then we have the four sons who each ask their own questions in their own ways. And then we go into the Midrash that uh, says, Mabikesh Arami, Levana Arami, Lazut Lavotenu. What did uh, Levan the Aramean want to do to our ancestors? And what does the story of the Exodus have to teach us about our lives? The whole Seder is constructed as a series of questions, even toward the end of the Seder. The songs that we sing are all questions. Who knows one? Who knows two? Dayenu, right? Are you saying Dayenu like it's enough of me speaking? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just teasing. Dayenu, of course, means that it would have been enough. The whole structure of the Seder is, is about questions. And I think that that is counterintuitively one of the essences of Judaism, even if you go to what is usually referred to as the central idea, maybe even the central credo of the Jewish tradition. When I was in high school taking comparative religions class, the teacher, who was a Protestant minister, uh, said that, that the following was the closest Judaism has to a credo, which is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But if you are sensitive to that phrase, you'll note a couple of things. The first is that it's not a credo. It's not saying that to be Jewish, one has to believe in the statement that it's making. All it's saying is, as a Jew, listen to this statement. Think about the statement. Consider this statement. But it doesn't necessarily mean that in order to be Yisrael, in order to be a Jew, one needs to wholeheartedly, fundamentally agree with that statement. And this is counterintuitive to a lot of people, especially outside the Jewish tradition. They ask and they wonder, can one be Jewish and not believe in God? And the answer, of course, is absolutely, 100%, unequivocally, yes. One can be Jewish and not believe in God. Now, should one be Jewish and not believe in God? That's a different question. But can one be Jewish and not believe in God? The answer is yes. And I think even more than that, the tradition um, eschews simple explanations and simple definitions of what God is. So that statement, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you read a hundred books, and a hundred commentaries on that statement, you'll get a hundred different takes on what that statement means. Because what does it mean that God is one? People don't even agree on the definition, the translation of the term. If you look at three or four different translations of the Bible into English, you'll see that phrase translated in any number of different ways. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. 
Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is oneness. Listen, O Israel. There's a million different things. So the very notion that Judaism has a faith claim that is on its surface self-evident that all Jews must describe to is not a feature and not a facet of Judaism. And it's a good thing, too, because if one believed that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what the nature and what the essence of God was and what God is, then one would have no reason any longer to believe. And often, what happens in religion, and I think one of the challenges that religion has in the modern context, is the perception of people who have co-opted religion with their own idolatries, with their own firm idea, unequivocating idea of what God is and what God demands, that they are so wedded to and so committed to and believe so fervently in that they are willing to do anything and go to any length to coerce people to believe that or to destroy the people who don't believe that. And the Jewish tradition doesn't go in that direction. Of course, there are Jews who have gone in that direction, but by and large, the Jewish tradition reminds us that God is beyond our understanding. And because God is beyond our understanding, God is even so much beyond our knowing that in that statement that I said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad, the word for God that I'm reading as Adonai doesn't say Adonai. It says four letters that we don't even know how to pronounce. Yud and He and Vav and He. Those are the Hebrew letters. They're all consonant. They're all vowel sounds. We don't know how to pronounce that word. So beyond our understanding, according to the Jewish tradition, is God, that we don't even know how to say God's name. Because the essence of faith, the essence of belief, the essence of the pursuit of a Jewish life is not unequivocating acceptance of a particular axiom or credo. It is, at its core, doubt. As the, late, as the Talmud says, always a person should teach their mouth to say, I don't know. Because there is so much in our universe that we don't know, and that is essentially beyond human understanding. Always a person should say, the Talmud says, I don't know. It's very much as German theologian Paul Tillich said that doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. One can't have faith in God, one can't believe, one can't practice without doubt. Because the essence of God is the mystery of space and time, the mystery of the cosmos, that which is beyond human understanding. And unless one can acknowledge that there are things that we don't know, then one can't fully believe. And even more than that, one risks turning belief into dangerous idolatry. And if we, at our core, don't know, it means that we have a responsibility to question and investigate and look skeptically at all truth claims to determine whether or not those claims are actually valid, are actually accurate. 
and determine, which is a similar or related but slightly different thing, whether or not they work. That's at its core what it is to be Jewish, is to take the statements that fly at us from all quarters of the world, even from within our tradition, and hold them up to the light of day and say, is that true and does it work? Is that true but do, and does it work? The Israelites in the story of the Exodus embody this. And the Torah in, I think, extraordinary fashion, something that is, I think, often overlooked, doesn't chastise the Israelites for this orientation. It just holds them up to the light and says, this is our heritage, these are our people, and here's what we do about it. So look at this. When Moses and God, when Moses receives this commission from God, at the burning bush, Moses says to God, When I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Ehyeh asher ehyeh. He continued, Thus shall you say to the Israelites, Ehyeh sent me to you. In other words, Moses anticipates that these Israelite people, when he goes to them and says, God told me to liberate you from Egypt, they're not going to believe me. So how am I going to prove to them that you actually sent me? And God's answer is actually a really fascinating one. God doesn't say, here's how you prove to them that I sent you. Here's what all God says is, tell them, Ehyeh sent me to you. Ehyeh, of course, means I will be. In other words, what God says to Moses is, they're not necessarily going to believe that the one true God of the universe sent me to you. But what they will understand, what they will believe is the language of possibility. The language of possibility. What God is opening the Israelites to is, you don't have to believe in me. What you need to believe in is the possibility that life can be better than it is. And that holds up to the standard that we just talked about. Is it true, and does it work? And on that account, yeah, I will be that, that, that there is a fundamental possibility that life can be better, is true. Life can always be better than it is. There is always a promised land to which we can go. There's always a liberation of which we're capable. And does it work? Yes, it does. And then God and Moses continue talking. Moses spoke up and says, but they're not going to believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you. And so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he replied, a rod. He said, cast it on the ground. He cast it on the ground and it became a snake. And Moses recoiled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and grasp it by the tail. He put out his hand and seized it, and it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob did appear to you. The Lord said to him further, put your hand into your bosom. He put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, his hand was encrusted with snowy scales. And he said, put your hand back into your bosom. He put his hand back into his bosom, and when he took it out of his bosom, there it was again like the rest of his body. And if they still don't believe you or pay heed to the first sign, they will believe the second. And if they are not convinced by both these signs and still do not believe you, take some water from the Nile and 
pour it on the dry ground, and it, the water that you take from the Nile, will turn to blood on the dry ground. God doesn't say about the Israelites, these are bad people for their lack of faith. If God really cared about their lack of faith, God would just change their minds. God theoretically has the power to do that. But God holds and honors their skepticism and tells to Mo- and says to Moses, the way to convince them is to hold up the standard, is it true, and does it work? And those are the tests that God gives Moses to show the Israelites. Is it true, and does it work? And even more than that, as uh, the commentator uh, uh, Nahum Sarna, who has this incredible commentary on Exodus, points out, all of the signs, all of the symbols that God shows Moses to have that standard of is it true and does it work are very Egyptian in nature. The snake is very symbolic of Egyptian culture. The Nile, of course, is sacred to Egyptian culture. In other words, God is saying that you have, these are people who've lived in Egypt for hundreds of years. You have to speak to them in their language. You have to give them arguments that they can understand, arguments with which they can identify. And for us, it's the same thing. The language we understand is the language of reason, and the language of science, and the language of philosophy, the language of relationship. And so if we, at our core as Jews, are supposed to be skeptics, to doubt, to investigate. And we're asking of our world and of claims of truth that come at us from all directions, is it true and does it work? The language with which we do that is the language of our logic, the language of our relationships, the language of philosophy, and the language of love. And those are the only ways we'll know, is it true and does it work? There is a debate raging in the Jewish community right now about the deal that was uh, struck between uh, the administration in the United States and the regime of Iran regarding their nuclear program. Now, I am not a statesman, I am not a diplomat, and I'm not going to necessarily weigh in on whether I think it's a good deal or a bad deal. But what I think I honor about what's happening in the Jewish community right now about this, and what I want to encourage us to continue doing is to be aligned with the best of what it means to be Jewish, which means to not take anything at face value. To ask, is it true and does it work of any argument that we hear, any claim about whether the deal is good or whether the deal is bad? Because everything needs to be held up to the light of day and needs to be asked, is it true and does it work? And it's true of the deal with Iran. It's true of anything in the realm of politics that we experience. It's true in the realm of religion that every claim needs to be held up to skepticism and investigation, and that is our heritage as Jews. As Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said, we are closer to God when we are asking questions than when we think we have the answers. And I bless you all that this Passover and every Passover hence and every day of your lives, you honor and hold that core of what it means to be Jewish. And we are closer to God when we ask questions 
do think we have all the answers. Shabbat Shalom.